Ash. Welcome back to Breaking the Fourth Wall. Where we engage in stimulating conversations about ways that we can promote positive change in musical theater. Thank you everyone for joining us every single week. Don't forget that we do have season one with tons of great information and we would love for you to leave us of stars or leave us a review if this podcast has been helpful for you. Let's get into our conversation for this week. I wanted to dive into seven factors that artistic directors and season selection committees should consider when choosing their productions. This is something that we are starting to see happening all over Mm -hmm. the world, right? At colleges, at community theaters, at regional theaters, at the Broadway theater level as well, all different types of theaters all over the world, you know, the West End in communities where we're looking into the fall and the spring season for next year. Mm -hmm. And we want to offer you seven different ideas moving forward for those of you that are at that leadership position level. And I hope that these seven factors serve as a foundation for anyone who's determining a season to, th- to rethink the process by which they, they think about season selection. Uh, we can no longer just pick shows, musicals, or plays because we like them or because the audiences will like them. We have to consider many different components Uh, to our process of selecting shows. So I'd love to share this with you. Quite often, we also see folks choosing musicals or plays, if you have both at your your theater, where they're nostalgic to Mm -hmm. the people in charge. And oftentimes, we don't realize that those musicals aren't relevant to the community. And then on the other end, we often see folks choosing musicals that are the money makers, and I, mm-hmm. we we get that. You, we know that you have to, you know, your theater, you know, your community, community, you know, the budget. But we need to start taking risks to support the community, to support underrepresented communities, and to really start to make that shift, even if it's the smallest way, even if you can only do one of these. We're hoping at least one, if not all seven, spark an interest and an excitement in all of you out there that are in these positions to choose and the upcoming program of your season. But before we do that, Tim, let's get into our puzzler. What do you have for us today? The puzzler for this week is, what musical's first act was written in 1981 and the second act written nine years later? This is a very exciting one. I love asking this question in my history class. It's so fun. (laughs) And we will circle back at the end of this episode and we will discover that answer together. What is the first factor that they could consider, Tim? Everyone should consider creating meaningful performance opportunities for the actors that do not tokenize or stereotype specifically the actors that exist uh, within the global majority or have disabilities or uh, don't conform to the traditional ideologies of a binary gender system. We really need to ensure that All of our actors that come from marginalized and underrepresented communities have the opportunity to engage in a meaningful way in their performance process and are not just being cast or feeling like they're being cast based on their gender or the color of their skin or their disability. We need to make sure that all of them feel they're on equal playing field with everyone that comes in and auditions and gets cast in a show. This asks for the creative team to also have imagination. 
about their casting choices and how they see certain characters within certain shows. If there is a production that has traditionally been cast by one particular uh, identity or one particular group, is there room within that production to rethink about the the global community, the global majority, or or uh, diverse voices that haven't been represented in that particular role? That way, specific marginalized groups have the opportunity to see themselves other than roles that are representative of the color of their skin or specifically their culture. Yes, that is important, but we need to encourage all actors to see themselves not just based on the color of their skin or their disability or their gender identity, but on the content of their character. Absolutely. What is the second factor that artistic directors and those that are on the season selection committees could consider when they're choosing their next production season? That when selecting their shows, the plots and the stories that the shows are centered around offer cultural and diversified balance. And hopefully where racism, sexism, ableism, uh, and more importantly, white cisgendered uh, dominance, male dominance, isn't the driving narrative of the production. Yes, those are there are moments of that that may come up and arise. But my hope is that, you know, oftentimes we've seen productions that are all driven by cisgendered white men and really thinking about that and how we can rethink about the productions we choose so that there is a cultural balance. Yes. When you look at a season brochure of a theater and you immediately notice that every musical is centered around a typically male role, it's somewhat disheartening to me because I want to see myself represented And I want to see other voices, other people. I want to learn about other cultures. Musical theater is the best way to educate Mm -hmm. folks that perhaps don't understand, that don't know or that are not aware of someone else's lived experience. Absolutely. Uh, And the best way we can do that is to diversify our the shows and the roles that we are narrating and the stories that we are telling. The next factor that I want to share with all of you is promoting shows that create opportunities to lift up all gender identities. We can we should no longer conform to a two gender binary system. The world is so much more colorful and we need to celebrate that and we need to look for productions that celebrate all of the beautiful mosaic of gender identities that exist. And you know for too long uh, the trans and, and uh, non-binary communities have felt marginalized and sidelined and oftentimes have been left out of the audition experience or haven't even just shown up because they have not felt seen in the audition breakdowns or the character breakdowns. So I want to implore anybody that is coming, any director, choreographer, music director, producer that is con- uh, conceiving an idea for a show or, or thinking about a particular production, how can we lift up every gender identity that is represented in this beautiful world and create the capacity where uh, someone from the trans community or non-conforming identity can come into the audition experience and feel seen and feel represented? What that also does is showcase to young folks out there that are seeing these musicals, especially these family-oriented theater companies where they are seeing their families represented. You know, mm-hmm. I have two dads or I have two moms, or I just have two parents. And it is showing that their life is just as important 
and they're seeing themselves represented on stage. And we say that about a lot of other factors, but this is just as important. The stories that we're telling that have often been kept off, off stage because people consider them to be you know, political drivers or that we shouldn't be teaching folks that those families exist or that's mm-hmm. not, you know, maybe perhaps even because of religion. But we have to start telling these stories. It's, it is also our job as artists to showcase the many different types of families, lives, experiences. And that's why I always say to that we are really reclaiming musical theater as a device for for education and cultural change. It's something that we can do and it's something that we should be doing with these types of shows. And they're out there. You might have to search for them a little bit because they're not produced as often. But what a great opportunity for you to as well showcase a play or a musical that perhaps didn't make it to Broadway, didn't make it to off-Broadway, or is a new work for, by someone in your local community. And we acknowledge that we don't have all the answers. We acknowledge that this is shifting. Mm-hmm. We did episodes even last season where now we are using different terminology, different language, different ways to be inclusive of all folks. And so we know that this is still evolving and that we are always learning and always navigating to best support folks. Absolutely. From, absolutely. Yep. And so the best thing we can do is say, I'm going to continue to move forward. Maybe Mm -hmm. I didn't do it in my last breakdown, but I'm going to try to do it in this one. And strive to be more inclusive every single time. Yes. We don't have to have all the answers right now, but we can move forward with the ones that we have and seek out the answers that we don't have from folks that can give us more information on that. Yeah. What is the fourth element, Tim, that they could consider? Productions that present the opportunity to support and promote cultural literacy for the audience members that come to uh, attend the productions. I'm not saying that every show has to be race-specific or has to be uh, have, have an intense message about cultural literacy, but are there opportunities for both the cast and the audience and the, and the creatives and the design team and the staff to all l- become better humans after the production is over, having learned something, having, uh, having gained an experience or knowledge about a particular culture or, or, um, or a marginalized group that, didn't, that they didn't know about in the past? I think that's something that should be considered uh, at least in one or a couple different shows that are part of the season. One of my favorite parts when you're on the, the the side of the production where you're not on stage, so you're not backstage, but when you're directing or music directing or designing or your element happens to be you're in the house watching the show, it is so fascinating to listen to people discuss the show and their viewpoints, be that sometimes good and bad from their perspective, their critiques, if you will, during intermission. Mm-hmm. And before the show and after the show, I always like to stand in the house, in the back of the house when people are kind of leaving and then stay around in the lobby to just kind of be a fly on the wall and to hear <laughs> what people are saying. And it's it really does inform how people perceive stories and themes differently. Mm-hmm. And it's quite fascinating. You start to pick up on how something didn't translate for, because of your concept. I remember somebody said something uh, when I directed Little Women. They were like, 
I thought that set design was so amazing because I did something very conceptual and the scene designer, Kristen Campbell, who's amazing, uh, she we just, we went something really kind of out of the box and they were like, it was so amazing. But that's not how it would look in that time period. And they just kind of <laughs> set on that for a while. And I thought, oh, that's fascinating. They're kind of mm-hmm. experiencing something conceptual for the first time to mm-hmm. them. So I think that was quite fascinating. And what is the fifth factor that they could consider, Tim? Where actors from all backgrounds have the opportunity to engage in meaningful performance roles, where their humanity and their essence are the driving factors for casting decisions, not the color of their skin. We're talking about the content of the character, who they are, and um, are we able to look past color, skin color, uh, disability, uh, gender identity to, to say, yes, their human, their their humanity and their essence speak to the character. And that's what's going to get lead them to getting cast in that production. And what I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what we're not saying is to ignore who they are. Ignore oh, no, no, absolutely not. Their race, ignore their abilities. We're not saying that, but to look deeper, mm-hmm. to look and say, how can this actor bring to life a story that maybe I hadn't perceived, but in that in that moment, the spark of how they would create a character is so unique and would really function well in the concept that you are putting together for that specific production that might be different than any production that's ever been done before to tell that story. And the next one that I want to talk about is any production, selecting any production that promotes the actors and the designers and the creatives' personal and creative growth. And I'm talking about all areas of acting, singing, dancing, musicianship, design. I always want to select a production where our design team, our creatives, and our actors walk away better artists than they did when they started on day one. And so in selecting your your shows, is there room for productions that that offer that capacity? For example, many of the musicals and actually even plays that I have seen you direct, what I found so interesting is that after I went and saw the show, even though you talked about it all the time at home, of course, but we used to be passing ships in the night. And what I always found fascinating is when I saw the production, I would say, wow, that's really interesting. This production is something that I know you're passionate about, but it's not something that I've always heard you you know, excited about directing. Yes, you were excited about it, but what, what made you select that production? And sometimes you would say to me, I selected it because you know, my scenic designer, my colleague, you know, Kevin Klaus, who's an amazing scenic designer, he wanted to do this type of production because this style is his jam. Like this is what he is so wonderful and good at doing that a lot of people in this area don't even do well. And that type of production isn't done quite often. For an example of this is when you directed the play Clyborn Park. And I thought, that's so interesting that you directed it because it's not something that you know you had talked about quite recently, but you said because Kevin was so excited about that and it gave him an opportunity to showcase his abilities. And for those of you that don't know, there's a scene change. We basically take place in the exact same house, 1959, 
and then Act Two takes place in 2009 in the exact same house. And we have we had exactly 12 minutes to usher the entire audience out of the house completely. We built two sets for the show, restructured the entire set to suit 2009, uh, and it was pretty incredible. I would say it's one of Kevin's best designs I've ever had the opportunity and pleasure to work with. I'll never forget going back in act two and they were like, everyone needs to leave. And I was like, can I stay and watch the scene change? And (laughs) you were like, no, I want you to experience it as a real regular audience member. And you come back into the house and and, and everybody, the buzz, everybody's like, what just happened? And you can see people going, where is the, what did they flip it? Did they, did they paint it? What, what is, what is going on? How did that happen? And it was so wonderful and imaginative. Another great example is when you directed Spring Awakening and it gave Jojo such a great opportunity to really dive into her experience and her creativity as a costume designer. And we had Jojo on a a podcast episode earlier on, so go back and check that out. But your colleague that came in with this wonderful design for Spring Awakening that I had never seen before. And I don't see it early on. I always make sure I show up up just, you know, an opening night. So I'm surprised just like everybody else. And I'd never seen a production of Spring Awakening done in that fashion. And I also want to riff on that because because I'm an audience member, I can say this about your productions, (laughs) is I was so, I was so in awe of the projections that were created for that production. And nobody else had ever done that before in a musical. And I thought it just added a different type of element that was specific to the concept that your design team came up with. And the last factor that I want to talk about uh, when it comes to season selection is selecting productions that not only speak to the moment, but speak to current industry practices as well. Are we creating a fruitful experience for all the designers? Are we pushing them to excel? Are we pushing... Uh, the actors, the uh, all of the designers to excel in the work. And that's something that I think is really important. Also, as we move into 2021 and the reemergence of theater again, are we selecting productions that speak to the moment we're in? I'm not saying every single show has to, but is there one show that allows us to connect with what we've been through over the course of the last year or what we are going through currently as a, as a culture and as a community? I think that's imperative. Uh, that we we engage uh, in theater that reflects the American experience. Let's wrap back around to our puzzler today, Tim. What was the question? And let's talk about the answer. All right. The puzzler was, which musical's first act was written in 1981 and the second act written nine years later? And the answer is... Falsettos. Falsettos. That one was a little bit of a tricky question because just as I'm looking at my notes, it's easy to look at on the page, but it might be a little tricky to just hear. Falsettos is comprised of basically two musicals in one. So um, in 1981, March William Finn's March of the Falsettos was uh, produced. And uh, nine years later, Falsetto Land, which served as kind of a sequel an addendum to March of the Falsettos was written. And ultimately, those two shows became one, what we now know as Falsettos today. And a little tidbit, there's actually a prequel 
to March of the Falsettos, which was called In Trousers, which basically introduces the main characters of Falsettos. So it's kind of like three musicals that make up the entire history of Falsettos. It's a really interesting journey that William Finn took with this show. Uh, but I love Falsettos. It's it's one of, it, right up there with one of my top favorite musicals. A really powerful story, timely. And uh, I hope if everyone has an opportunity to see it in some capacity, they do. Perhaps even produce it. That's right. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll see you next week.